morning again. It's always the lame good morning when the guy gets up to preach. It's never the same enthusiastic one as the first one. That's okay. Thank you. Thank you. Now you're just pitying me. (laughs) Yes, hopefully you have your Bibles open to Mark 4. Uh, If you don't, please find it, Mark chapter 4. I trust that last week you were uh, blessed by having Spencer Adams here and that you were fed by the ministry of the Word. We're grateful and encouraged that um, we can partner with them in different ways and they can partner with us and we're grateful that they are willing to loan pastors and preachers to us whenever we need it. We are going to continue through Mark chapter 4. We're not going to get to the end today. But, Lord willing, we will finish the section on the parables. And a couple of weeks ago, hopefully you'll remember, we looked at the first 20 verses of Mark 4, and that was the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils, or the parable of the seed, depending on where you kind of put the emphasis. And we looked at what Mark was trying to really drive forward in pairing these together. We need to keep that in mind, that Mark breaks up his narrative on purpose, Mark has just been telling the story of Jesus coming, what he's doing, what he's preaching, calling the disciples, casting out demons, healing people who are sick, all sorts of diseases. Mark, Mark has been explaining all of that, and chapter 4 is the break. Chapter 4 is where we actually get some of the teaching that Jesus is telling people. We get the parables that Mark has just referenced before in the first three chapters. He taught them in parables. Well, what are they? Now we've got them. And what he did in the first 20 verses, what Jesus did was explain, because people have been coming from all over the place, all over the region, from Galilee, from Judea, from Idumea, from up in the north, from across the river Jordan. They've been coming from everywhere, and they've been coming to Jesus. But Jesus wanted to explain very carefully the difference between people who are just excited because they saw some pretty neat miracles happen and the people who are really following Jesus. And what we saw at the end of two weeks ago was that to be a true disciple of Jesus, to have fully committed to him, to be a a true follower of God, to be a part of the kingdom, to be a part of the family of God means you bear fruit. There's a difference between all of the people that just say they're following Jesus and the people that are actually following Jesus. There's a difference in your life. There's an obedience to God and to his word. Mark continues in verse 21 through 34. I'm going to reread it because parables are tricky sometimes, aren't they? Sometimes we've heard the parables before and they're so short. There's a lamp, then there's a seed, and then there's another seed. And sometimes, maybe I'm admitting too much, sometimes I even get them confused. Which one was which? which? Which one went with which thing? Because there's so many parables, especially if you get to Matthew and Luke, there's more parables over there. And sometimes how they recount the story is slightly different than how Mark recounts it. It's important for us to keep in mind what Mark has here and to keep in mind that he's put these together on purpose. And each parable, though they're all put together, they have a specific point on their own. Each parable has something very specific that Jesus was honing in on and that Mark wants to highlight by pulling these parables and putting them back to back to back to back. They have specific points, but together they inform us and give us the full picture. That is, no parable can say everything. 
There's no perfect parable to give you a full-orbed idea of who Jesus is and what the kingdom's doing. That's why there's multiple ones. And that's why we take them all together and we get the full, full picture. So let's read that again. Mark chapter 4, verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's just take a moment to pray again. Father, we ask that as we come to your word again, week by week we do this, Lord, and week by week we we need to ask for your help, we need to ask for your aid and understanding, not just the parables because they're sometimes tricky, but the entirety of your word. And Lord, we call on you now to send your spirit to open our eyes, to help us to see, help us discern and understand. We want to see you more clearly. We want to love Jesus more fully And we want to worship and praise more completely. We ask that you would help us to do that as we come to your word now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at the the three specific parables that we've got. We're going to take them kind of in chunks. Get the one point that Jesus is trying to make from that. And then we'll look at them kind of as a package deal. And see what Mark is doing by putting all of these parables together. Because Jesus... We're not told specifically that Jesus told these parables one after the other. We're not told that this parable is all that Jesus said. Mark is recounting just the the statement. What teaching came along with that parable, we're not quite sure. We don't have everything that Jesus ever said. But what is Mark doing? Well, verses 21 through 23, let's look at that first. That's the lamp. And what Jesus is doing by talking about this lamp Bringing a lamp out, what do you do with it? Well, you don't bring it out to then hide it. You don't bring a lamp, or if we were to use 21st century terminology, a flashlight, a lighter, whatever it is. You don't, you don't have a light source, light it on purpose, bring it out, and then cover it. That defeats the purpose of the light. You have the light to shed light in the darkness, to bring what was once dark, to make that no longer dark, and to make it in a state of of lightness. And that just makes sense, right? 
Like logically, we, we can follow with the lamp idea. It's the same kind of thing. Our girls have flashlights that my dad gave them, these like lantern things. And they love taking them and just turning them on and then sticking them in the drawer. <laughs> and I don't get it. Well, you don't understand that. Go down into the basement where it's dark and you can see things and you can make forts and you can play down there. And they just seem content turning it on and sticking it in the drawer, making it useless. That doesn't make any sense. Now, for kids, we'll give them a break, right? Kids don't quite understand exactly what things are for. And yet, this is the the illustration that Jesus gives us. It doesn't make sense to hide something that is designed specifically to bring light, to bear light on. And the lamp in this parable is associated with, it's meant to describe hidden things, Concealed things, secret things. That is, the lamp is equated with those hidden things. Just as you don't bring a lamp out and hide it, the hidden things, the secret things, the concealed things are not meant to be brought out and then kept under a blanket, kept under a basket, kept under the bed. That's not the point. The purpose of the hidden and the secret and the concealed things is to be made manifest. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. This is kind of like hide and seek. What is the point of going to hide when you play that game? It's to be found, right? Now, if you're the one hiding, your whole point is to not be found. But the the point of hide and seek is somebody goes and hides, and the, the whole objective is to find them, to be found. That is, they're not meant to be hidden forever. It's not run away and disappear. It's called hide and seek for a reason. That's kind of what Jesus is getting at here. The difference being, when we play hide and seek, you go and hide and I come and find you. I try to discover where you are. I try to, I try to reveal you. The difference here in this passage is that the hidden things, the secret things, come to light in and of themselves. Nobody discovers them. They reveal themselves. I use my children a lot in illustrations. I got to work on this, but they're just so helpful in understanding some of these things. When I play hide and seek with Naomi, particularly, she'll go and hide. And you know, as parents, or maybe you babysit and you're, you're wandering around and you're going, where are you? Are they in the closet? Are they in the bathroom? And more often than not, Naomi, Naomi will go, I'm over here. <laughs> She's not getting the point. You're supposed to hide and stay hidden, sweetie. It's all right. No, no, no. I will find you. You just stay there. You be quiet. Right? (laughs) She's stunned that I said her name out loud. Hi, yes. That's the kind of hide and seek that Jesus is talking about here. The hidden things are not meant for you to be discovered, you to discover them. They will reveal themselves. That is, the hidden things are hidden temporarily And then they pop out and say, here I am. That's the illustration of the lamb. That's the illustration of the hidden things. Now, the question we need to ask is, what is this all talking about? Is it talking about the parables? Is it talking about the meaning of the parables specifically? That is, the parables are hidden in meaning, and one day they will be revealed and we will understand the parable. Is that what it's talking about? Is that what the lamp represents? Is the lamp equal to the parable? I would submit that grammar in this case is important. I am not good at grammar. 
I am not good at English and putting words together sometimes, which is really not good when my whole job is speaking. But sometimes putting words together is not my strong suit. The phrasing here in verse 21, look in verse 21. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in? Now, the reason our translation in Mark says that is because that's exactly what Matthew and Luke say in their account of this parable. Do you bring a lamp in? The phrasing here in Mark is actually slightly different, which gives us an idea of what Mark is driving at when he recounts the lamp parable. The phrasing is actually, does the lamp come? Now, that doesn't make any sense when you're talking about an actual lamp. Lamp A lamp can't bring itself in. It doesn't wander in. This isn't Beauty and the Beast, right? Like they don't, it doesn't just sprout legs and walk, walk around lighting itself whenever it wants. Why does Jesus use that phrase? Why does Mark recount the phrase this way? Does the lamp come? That gives it personality. That gives it personhood. That gives it being on another level other than just being a lamp. Well, what is the lamp of Scripture? Psalm 119, verse 105. What does that say? Pop quiz. Oh, yeah, this is, I'm assuming you said the right thing. Everybody's got the mask on and you, you can't really yell through that. Your word is a lamp to my feet. The word of God is the lamp in, according to that verse, the Torah. What God has said is actually the thing that is giving light to the people of God as they walk through this earth. But it goes beyond that as well. That's perhaps the most easy to remember lamp in scripture that it's the word of God but it actually refers to God himself God himself refers to himself as the lamp of the people in 2nd Samuel 22 in 2nd Kings God refers to his promised coming Messiah from the line of David as the lamp you read through 2nd Kings there is bad king after bad king after bad king after bad king and as you're reading through 2 Kings, you have to be thinking in the, the back of your mind, why in the world doesn't God just wipe this whole line out and start over? He did that with Noah. Why doesn't he just do that here? These kings are terrible. And there's a little footnote inside the text. It's not actually a footnote, but it, he says, but he did not destroy the line of David because he had promised to send a lamp from David. It's a picture of the Messiah who was the one to come. Going back to the promise that God made to David himself that he would send somebody in his line to live and to rule and to reign forever. The lamp is more than just a physical lamp when we actually pay attention to what all of Scripture is saying. The lamp is God himself, the promised coming Messiah. It's the word of God. Put all of that together and what do you got? That's Jesus. What is Mark saying here? He's saying that the lamp is Jesus. And he's saying that the lamp, Jesus, did not come to remain hidden forever. That Jesus himself, though you may not see him completely and fully right now, you may not understand and be able to put it all together, but Jesus will one day be fully manifested in all of his glory and then you will see, then there will be no doubt who is Jesus. What is he doing? Jesus will reveal himself. You can't discover Jesus. You can't dig deep enough to actually fully understand who he is. That's why as we come to the word of God, we don't just leave God out of it. We need him to reveal himself to us if we are to understand anything. 
Jesus is saying that he has come to be hidden for a while, but in due course, in due time, he will reveal himself in full. That happens in little bits and pieces. We've already seen snippets of that. We've seen him proclaim the message of the kingdom, preach the gospel, repent and believe. And then we see those little snippets of him casting out demons. We see him casting out evil spirits. We see him driving away fevers. We see him breaking in in a whole new way that humanity has never seen before. We've gotten a little picture, a little glimpse, kind of like peeking through the wrapping paper. I'm not very good at wrapping presents at all. That's partly why I got married so Candace could deal with all of that. She wraps all of my presents for all of my family because I can't do it. Because inevitably, every time I wrap something, I don't get the corners right or I actually tear it. And remember when you were a kid and maybe your parents weren't great at it either and you could see just, just a little corner of whatever was in underneath the wrapping? What happened when you saw just that little bit? You really wanted to tear it open and see what it was, Right? You didn't want to just leave it there. That is, the fact that you could see just the little bit grew your excitement. It helped build the anticipation. It made you want to see even more. It didn't make you become bored, right? You didn't lose interest because you could only see a little bit. It actually made you more excited because you saw that little bit and you were excited for what was underneath. That's what... That's what Jesus is saying about himself. You're seeing little snippets. And when we get to the cross, we'll see an even bigger picture. But we've got little snippets now. The question is, is your anticipation growing or is your interest waning? That's the question that you're faced with after this parable. Jesus said, I've come to build anticipation bit by bit by bit. It's like a lamp. The purpose of the lamp is to be giving light And that light will become brighter and brighter and brighter. But even in this little bit that you see, are you excited about that? Or are you disinterested? That's what verses 24 and 25 are talking about. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. That is, if you are excited when you see Jesus, when your joy is filled up, when you are filled with faith at just a little bit of Jesus that you see right now, more will be given But if you don't even have that, like the Pharisees or some in the crowds, if you're only here to see a neat trick or like the Pharisees, you actually are disgusted and annoyed at what Jesus is doing, more of that is going to be added. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I mentioned this parable a few weeks ago, Luke chapter 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And in that parable, the rich man down below, calling up to Abraham, calling up to Abraham to send Lazarus down with just a drop of water, just to to quench my thirst, just to take a little bit of the pain away. And my point a few weeks ago was he doesn't want to get out. He's not trying to get away from the judgment. He's not trying to, there's no sign of repentance. He just wants to be relieved where he is. And then he says, at the end of that illustration, the rich man says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus back to my brothers. Lazarus is up in heaven. Rich man's down in hell. Send him back so that my brothers won't end up, so that my family won't end up where I am. 
And the response was no. For he has Moses and the prophets. No, Abraham. If, you, if somebody came back from the dead, that would convince them. Moses and the prophets aren't enough. But, but if Lazarus came back from the dead and actually said what was going on, that would be convincing. And the response is no. If they do not believe, if they do not see, if they do not, through Moses and the prophets, see that little glimpse and believe, then not even somebody coming back from the dead will do that. We see that even in Lazarus himself. Not the Lazarus of the parable, but when Lazarus dies, the real man Lazarus and his sisters, Jesus goes and he raises Lazarus from the dead, then what happens? The scribes and the teachers of the law, they want to kill Lazarus. They're not convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. He just raised somebody from the dead. And they're not convinced because they don't see through the scriptures, through Moses and the prophets, through that little glimpse that they've seen, they want to drive Jesus away and destroy him. They don't want to accept and understand and believe. We have enough now. Believe now. Repent now. Have faith now. Trusting and being excited that more will be revealed. Jesus did not come to stay hidden forever. And one day, this is moving into the next parable, one day he will be coming back. Let's look at the next one. Verses 26 through 29. The seed now represents something different. Previously, in verses 1 through 20, the seed represented the word, the gospel, what was being preached. That's what it represented. Now it represents the kingdom. And he said, this is verse 26, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. What is the kingdom like? You want to understand what it means for the kingdom of God to break into humanity, to break in and drive back the kingdom of Satan? What is that? What can we account this to? It's like he scattered seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Quick summary of farming. Although that's not entirely the point. It's not a farming point, right? Because there are other things that go into gardening and farming. Because although you plant, what do you do? You water. You pull out weeds. You remove the rocks. You put in a scarecrow to drive the birds away. There are other elements that are a part of farming and gardening. And again, that's not the point that Jesus is trying to make here. What is he trying to make? The growth of the seed that is representing the expansion of the kingdom may seem slow, maybe even unobservable to the human eye at times, right? You put the seed in the ground, and the next day, what happens? Nothing. Then the next day, what happens? Nothing. Well, I guess there are certain types of plants that grow up just like that, right? Again, it's not meant to be a farming analogy, but what is, what is the point? We may not see it all the time, and yet after a few days or maybe a few weeks, that little stem starts to poke up through the dirt, then a little bit more, then a little bit more. And although the expansion of the kingdom may seem unobservable to the human, high, to the human eye at times, it's growing. It is growing. And the difference is that you and I can't make that growth. The farmer can't actually make it grow. The farmer can't make the seed do anything. The seed in and of itself, the earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of ear. We cannot rush or force the seed. You may want a full ear of corn, 
in May. It's not going to happen. And there's nothing you can do. You can't make your garden grow faster. You can't make the flowers bloom any quicker. There's nothing we can do about it. We can't rush it, we can't force it, and we can't produce it by ourselves. But there will be a harvest. When the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. There will be a harvest one day. What is the kingdom like? We can't see it all the time. We can't see below the surface of those soils. We can't see into the hearts and into the minds and into the lives of every individual around us. We can't see where the kingdom is going. We can't see exactly how fast the kingdom is growing. And we can't see it. But just because we can't see it doesn't mean it isn't. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not growing. And Jesus says that rest assured, the kingdom is advancing. And when fully complete, when fully done, the harvest will be brought in. Because the harvest has come, he puts it to the sickle. Not a moment too soon and not a moment too late at the perfect time when the kingdom has done everything that it needs to do. Then we have verses 30 through 32, another seed parable. We've had a couple, and this is the third one. The seed, in this case, still represents the kingdom, but it's highlighting a different aspect of the kingdom. Before it was, well, I can't see if it's growing. And now we get a different part. Verse 30, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which... When sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Represents the kingdom, but a different aspect. They're not the exact same. And it's important to point out that, again, the point of the parable is not biology. It's not botany. That is, there are people who wish to discredit the scriptures, discredit Jesus and what he's saying, discredit the deity and the knowledge of Jesus by saying that, well, the mustard seed actually isn't the smallest plant or the smallest seed in the earth. There are, in fact, smaller ones. And that's not the point that Jesus is making. He's not making a statement on the actual size of the mustard seed. He's making a contrast and comparison between something that is so, so small that grows into something so, so big. The point is not that this is the smallest thing in the world that you ever plant in the garden. It's, do you notice how how small this thing is and how big that thing grows? It's kind of like saying, the smallest of leaks can cause the biggest of damage. Well, There are smaller leaks, right? You can always find a smaller hole. You can always find a smaller leak in your roof. But the point is not that that's the smallest leak in the world. The point that you're trying to make is look at how small this was and look at how how big of a problem this caused. If we were to use a North American metaphor, we would say, look at the acorn. It's the smallest of nuts, right? Look at this tiny little nut. 
it gets buried in the ground. And after a few weeks, after a few months, it grows and it sprouts and it still looks, you know, the tree is only this big around. But you come back in 50 years and what do you have? This mighty thunderous oak that can withstand rainstorms and thunderstorms, that can withstand flash floods, it can withstand anything. Something so tiny and so small grew into something so big. What is Jesus saying here when he's comparing the growth of a mustard seed with the kingdom? Jesus is saying, the kingdom may not look like much right now. You may not see a massive kingdom right in front of you. But one day it will overshadow everything else. The mustard seed was the smallest thing planted in the garden and yet when it grows up, it becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches. It overshadows everything. So much so that birds, this isn't a tiny little plant, birds can come and they make nests not on the top, they make their nests in the shade. The shade spreads out so far, it is so expansive, so big that birds can come and rest in its shade. And the kingdom is just like that. It may not look like much right now. And it may be at different stages of growth. And, and you and I, it's not our job to evaluate how far along the kingdom is. It's to recognize and understand that even though we may not see right now, we can rest assured that one day the kingdom will overshadow everything else. That the kingdom of God will advance. So, why tell these parables? Why does Mark put these together? Why does Jesus, first of all, teach these things and then Mark, partner this with, at this point in chapter 4, where our chapter 4 is. Why does he break with the narrative of what Jesus is doing, the miracles that he's doing, and just break in there and say, but here's what he's actually saying. Here's some of the things that Jesus actually said, some of the parables he actually taught. Why tell these parables now? We've been reminded that it's important to recognize and understand to be, a, to be in the kingdom means you bear fruit. To be a follower of Jesus means you bear fruit. To be in the family of God means you bear fruit. Why tell these parables? Because it does not always look like the kingdom of God is growing. It doesn't look like the kingdom of God is growing or advancing or driving back the kingdom of Satan. These parables were written for first century Jews on the Sea of Galilee. But every believer from that point into the future when Jesus comes back can look at these parables and go, I get it. Jesus, I get it. Because the kingdom doesn't look like it's winning right now. The kingdom has been at different stages of growth throughout history and sometimes it looks like the kingdom of God is winning. Sometimes it looks like the kingdom of Satan is advancing. But I'm going to hold on to these promises, Jesus, that the kingdom will overshadow everything else. It may not look like it and you may be tempted to think that being a part of the family of God, being a part of the kingdom of God, going all in with Jesus, you may be tempted to think that it's, being, it's like being on the losing team because our eyes are telling us that God isn't winning. That maybe God isn't strong enough or big enough or sovereign enough to accomplish what he set out to do. That Jesus, yeah, you've done some pretty cool things through the first three chapters. You've driven out some, 
some evil spirits, you've, you've healed some people, that's great. But what was the question that we were left with in chapter 1? Jesus, he comes onto the scene. There's John the Baptist, then there's Jesus baptized. Then what happens? He's driven out into the desert, into the wilderness. And there's that, that temptation battle that he has with Satan. And we, we noted that in Mark's account, there's no resolution given. That is, in Matthew's account, we have the, the three quotes that Jesus gives from Scripture defeating Satan. We don't have that in Mark. Mark's readers don't have that assurance. They, they have that, okay, Jesus was driven out into the desert. He was tempted by Satan. And then Mark just moves on. Well, who's going to win? Who won there? Did Satan overpower Jesus? Is Satan actually working through Jesus now? That is, has this, the spirit of Satan, like the accusations of the scribes, has the spirit of Satan overtaken the spirit of God in the life of Jesus? The assurance that we have here is that it may look like that at times, but that's not true. We have the assurance of Jesus through these parables that the kingdom of God is advancing. It's still going forward. It's still driving out the kingdom of Satan. That's what these parables say. Now, I think it would be an appropriate response to go, yeah, but how do we know? How is that reassuring? You said that's true. But how can I trust that? How can I believe that? Because my eyes tell me something different. Next week, Lord willing, we'll see that the question of Jesus' authority, the question of Jesus' power, and the question of Jesus' sovereignty is going to be addressed. We're going to see that following this immediately, the question of, yeah, but how can I know for sure that what Jesus says is going to come true? That's going to be answered. But we also live on the other side of Mark 16. What I mean by that is we live on the other side of the cross. And if there was ever a single day in the history of humanity where the kingdom of Satan seemed to have won, it was on Good Friday. It was on that day where the Son of God hung on the tree, where the crowds were crying out for his crucifixion, where his disciples and his closest friends for the past three years had abandoned him and run away. It looks like Satan has won. But that's not the end. <laughs> because to our, to our human eyes, standing there on Friday, as Jesus is being taken down from that tree, as Jesus is being put into that tomb, as that stone is being rolled over the face of that tomb, from our perspective, forever being done and over with. Past three years, yeah, that was pretty great, but that didn't work. We thought this was it. We thought this was going to be the answer. We thought he was going to be the one. And it didn't work. We now stand in light of the empty tomb, in light of a cross that worked and was vindicated and justified in the life of Jesus by him having the power to raise up his own life from the dead and he now stands ruling and reigning on high. If you are concerned and worried that, okay, everything out there looks like God's losing. Looks like Satan is winning. And you can pick whatever hobby horse you want to get on in terms of what's wrong with the world. What's wrong out there? The things that are wrong. And yet, throughout all of human history, every believer could come to these passages, could come to these parables, and whether they were sitting in the pew or in prison, they could latch onto the fact that Jesus wins. 
because the tomb is empty. That your eyes don't always tell the truth. That is why we live by faith and not by sight. We were given a little glimpse in the life of Jesus. We were given an even greater glimpse at the cross. And if God not just turned out one of the worst days in humanity, not just worked it all out for good, but accounted for it, planned it, and accomplished it, if he can do that, what are you worried about? Now we worry. I get it. We have lots to worry about. But come back to the promises of Jesus that even though you may not see it, the kingdom is advancing. Remember the cross. Satan thought he had won. Use that because the point there in the middle parable, talking about the man that scatters the seed, verse 29, when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The point for us is to take these promises of Jesus to be encouraged to stand in faith. That even though you may not see it, rest assured that God is in control. But more than that, the harvest time is coming. The harvest time being an illustration, a metaphor, often referred to in the New Testament as the second coming of Christ. That is, the cross has happened, yes, but that's not the end of the story. That is, you and I are here today, yes, because of the cross, because of the empty tomb. But we're not just continually looking back to the cross, we're looking forward to the future. We're looking forward to the harvest time where Jesus comes back, where he brings all of those who have gone before us back with him. We meet him in the clouds, and we're with him forever. That's the point of why we do this, to build our excitement and anticipation. And if you're not excited now, don't think you're going to be excited when he comes back. We get a little bit right now. We get little glimpses. We get that peek through the wrapping paper. Is that enough? You've got the cross. That's a pretty big glimpse. That's a pretty big picture of what God is doing, how God is working, how God is destroying the kingdom of Satan. Are you anticipating the second coming of Christ? Is your excitement growing? Are you anxious to see Jesus in his full glory when the harvest is brought in? Satan has been defeated. He was defeated at the cross. We're just waiting for Jesus to come back when Satan will be completely destroyed. Well, what do we do with this? I can't convince you of anything. I can't make you uh, more excited. I can't make you less anxious. I can't make you less fearful. And if anything, over the past year, we've come to realize that our anxieties were pretty good when life was seemingly okay, but all of a sudden we get hit with something we can't control and our fears and our anxieties are just driven through the roof. And I tell you this right now, that even though you can't see what's going on, even though you may not see what God's doing, because for us, we're in a pretty good spot. There are believers around the world who are in prison because they trust in Jesus Christ, because they preach the gospel that he has called them to preach. There are believers around the world who are being executed. There are believers around the world who are being abandoned and disowned by their family. 
there are believers who, like the New Testament believers and like believers throughout the history of humanity, they have been faced with the question, what do I do when it seems like we've lost? Do I give up? Do I pack it in? Do I cave? Or do I stand on the truth of Jesus Christ? Your call from these parables is one to trust. Trust that God is in control. Two, look to the things that he's already done if you're still not quite sure. Look at the cross. Don't don't lose sight of that. And three, keep looking to the future. Look past the present where for our lives, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, whatever we've got on this earth, small little drop in the bucket, he's coming back. Do you know how he's going to come back? This is perhaps my favorite passage in all of Scripture. Revelation 19, verse 11. This is John writing what he saw about the second coming of Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's our Jesus. That's our lamp. That's the one who is advancing the kingdom of God. We do not stand on the losing side. The battle has already been won. We're just waiting for the consummation. May God help us to Stand in faith now and grow in excitement for the future. Father, we ask that you would build these things into our hearts. That you would drive away the fear in our lives, the anxiety. That you would drive that away and replace it with the trust and promises that you have given to us. May these parables be an exciting thing to read over and over and over again. Being reassured that all will be made right in the end. Help us in those moments where we are weak, when we, when we can't see past today. Help us, if we can't look into the future, help us to look back to the cross. Help us to see the cross and see the victory that was won there, the assurance that was given there, and help that propel us to future looking. Lord, we're weak and we need so much help. But we know that you love us and you have not left us that we are growing right now and you are growing your kingdom. We pray that you would help us to build our hearts with excitement, joy, anticipation. And Lord, we do ask that you would come soon. That you would right all of the wrong and that you would manifest, manifest yourself in such a way 
for all to see who you are. We thank you, we trust you, and we love you. And it's in the name of our lamp, the name of our rider on a white horse, the one who is faithful and true, our King of kings and Lord of lords. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.